This is The Radical Therapist, a space where we explore the intersections of collaborative therapy, philosophy, art and science and technology in a post-Freud, post-psychology world. Hey everybody, welcome to The Radical Therapist podcast, episode 82 This is Brian Doster, and I will be your guest host again. Dr. Hoff, for some reason, has given me access to his microphone, and for that, I'm very much appreciative. Today, we will be talking about understanding the effects of racial trauma with our special guest, Dr. Jamila Holcomb. Dr. Jamila Holcomb is teaching faculty at Florida State University in their Child and Family Sciences Department. She teaches undergraduate courses on parenting, adolescent development, and public policy. She is also a licensed marriage and family therapist in Tallahassee, Florida, and she is the owner of Holcomb Counseling and Consulting. She specializes in individual family and trauma counseling. I want to take this opportunity to welcome our special guest, Dr. Jamila Holcomb. All right. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Radical Therapist podcast. I want to welcome Dr. Holcomb to our podcast on this afternoon. We are so excited to have you as a guest Um, I just want to locate us for a minute. I met you at the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapists, where you were presenting on, I can't remember the exact topic, but I know that your research was around uplifting um, mental health as it pertained to black clients. And I knew for myself that in that moment I had, I felt seen and I knew that um, it was okay for us to prioritize black lives within mental health. How did you become interested in uh, that research? Well, firstly, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to dive into this conversation. Um, So I got interested in this topic specifically focused on families. I've always been passionate about parenting practices and just what we do within Black families to support one another. And so I started researching how Black parents talk to their kids about race and how do they prepare them for life as a Black person in America. Um, And so through that, I found a lot of resiliency and positivity and focusing on enhancing our culture and establishing racial identity and racial pride. And so, you know, it was just really positive research, which wasn't what I was reading. As a student, I was just reading a lot of negativity um, surrounding Black families and just from a um, just a negative perspective as it compares to white families. So just specifically focusing on like resiliency factors within Black families was how I started getting interested into this. Awesome. Um, you talk about living Black in America. Okay. Yes. Um, This week has been quite a week, right? Um, We had the recent uh, 
shooting of Jacob Blake. Uh Um, So yet another uh, story where Black Lives Matter is in the media. Black stories are being politicized by the right and the left, right? And so I wonder, as a Black clinician, how are you coping with what's Uh going on? Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's a fantastic question. And I think research racial trauma and experiencing racial trauma at the same time is just a really interesting like parallel um I'm not doing okay if I'm gonna be honest I'm not doing okay I've recognized myself feeling very numb Mm -hmm. and kind of zoning out and just being overwhelmed with emotions that I can't really pinpoint how I'm feeling And so then, so that's personally, and then as a clinician, I'm like drawn to how do I help my community? How do I provide a space for my clients, for just people on social media who are connecting with me? How do I provide that space for them to process how they're feeling, even though I don't feel like I have the space to process how I'm feeling? So it's, it's just an interesting place to be. It's exhausting. Um, it's, it's, it's a lot, you know, this like racial battle fatigue is, is real, right. Where you want to um, advocate, you want to use your voice, you want to provide a space for others, but you are also struggling um, as a black woman in America. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, I, I, I want to name, cause I haven't named this yet. We are talking about understanding the effects of racial trauma, right? Yes. And so you talk about racial battle fatigue. This week, Michelle Obama, while discussing how protests have inspired her, she also stated she is exhausted and frustrated. Uh Chris Paul said, quote, we are just tired of seeing the same thing over and over again. Jacob Blake's sister said to the press, I'm not sad. I'm not sorry. I'm angry and I'm tired. And I could go on and on, <laughs> even from my own social media feed of people naming that they're tired, they're exhausted. Through the lens of racial trauma, one, can you define racial trauma for our audience? And then also, how would you describe what is being expressed by these individuals? Mm-hmm. So racial trauma is just the trauma response to experiencing racism. So it can be physical responses, emotional responses, just psychological pain as it pertains to either personally experiencing racism or just witnessing something, um, a racist act happen. So whether it's murder, whether it's attempted murder, whether it is just somebody else being discriminated against. Um, So that's what racial trauma is. All of the mental, physical, and emotional pain associated with watching or personally experiencing racism. Um, And what everyone is talking, speaking to in terms of being tired is the effect that trauma has on our bodies. It, it is exhausting. It, when we experience something traumatic, it puts our bodies in, you know, a fight 
or flight mode. We get into survival mode. We get hypervigilant. Um, our body is working overdrive. We, you know, are angry as people have said, you know, it just takes a lot of energy to be in that space. And when you're in that space for a long time, say 400 plus years, you're, you're exhausted. Um, there's, it, it, liken it to running a marathon every day. Um, it, trauma really takes a toll on your body. We don't talk about that as much. We talk about the physical or the, excuse me, the mental effects of experiencing trauma, but trauma really does have an impact on our physical health as well. So we physically feel tired where we may not want to get out of bed mm -hmm. or just, you know, engage with the world that day. And someone would say to you, well, 400 years, um, Michelle Obama, she hasn't been around for 400 years. Chris Paul hasn't been around for 400 years. So how are we applying 400 years to people who are living now in the 21st century? And what comes to mind is intergenerational trauma. And is there a way for you to kind of give us some education behind that? Mm -hmm, absolutely. So there's lots of ways that we can experience racism and experience racial trauma. And so one is through this intergenerational and like historical trauma. So just simply hearing stories, just like I said, witnessing, so like more vicarious types of trauma, simply hearing stories, the legacy of slavery, hearing your family members history with racism, reading about it within the history books, um, that is something that we internalize as being a part of us because it's related to our culture and our community. And so we take on that trauma. Um, so just by simply reading it and hearing the stories, but there's also research out there that talks about trauma being stored in our bodies and it being passed down um, through genetics um, you know, because it's stored in our bodies and we're not able to process it. And so we are passing it on to our children um, just by simply experiencing the trauma and not having a place to, to health in a healthy way store it. Mm -hmm. What is it about black families that we we kind of take on, right? We take on what's happening to other black people in in society. What is that about? Can you give insight? Sure. So I liken it to just like this collective, um, uh, mentality, right? So you have like an individualistic, uh, type of value and you also have a collectivistic type of value. And I think cult or historically, um, Africans had a collectivistic type of value and African-Americans, of course, you know, adopted that through slavery and being separated from each other and, um, you know, from your actual biological family. So having to make new family members from those around you and just knowing that, you know, we're going to be better together. We got to stick together. So that collectivistic value plays a role here because then when one of us is hurt, we all are hurt, mm. similar to what Jacob Blake's sister, I believe, is, you know, talked about how, you know, I've been hurting for a long time because all of these people are part of my family. Um, and so she named historically people who have been murdered or have been, you know, traumatized or have been victimized by racism and how it personally has affected her. So we take this on. It's part of our community. You know, I'm thinking a lot about um, Chadwick Boseman right now as well and just the loss of him and how we are taking that on too, um, because he is, he is our brother. He is a part of our community. Does Chadwick's story get 
um, centered in kind of a trauma experience. Um, go ahead. Certainly, because, you know, so him as a person, not not many of us know him as a person. Um, we know him kind of as an image. And I think what he represented for the Black community was, you know, hope and positivity and strength and the beauty of Black people and just the uplifting of our community through his many roles, not just Black Panther, that's the one that we would liken him to, but through many of his roles. So I think the loss of that in a time where a lot of people are, where we are being tra uh, traumatized by, um, by racism daily, I think the loss of the hope and the positivity is likened to just another trauma experience. So similar, you know, trauma can be experienced in a lot of ways, just losing someone, even if it's not related to racism is traumatic. So just the loss of somebody. But in this context, I think that we can liken his death to this racial trauma, because he he provided us a lot of hope and connected, um, connected our community in a positive way. He made us feel seen in a time where we are not being seen or where we're screaming to be seen. And so his loss um, kind of just feels like, I don't know, uh, I don't know, just like pulls the rug out from under you mm -hmm. almost just, yeah. In a, in a, when you're in a dark place, you need that light. And, and he was kind of that light. So I know a lot of black people are struggling right now with the loss of him. Absolutely. Um, you talk about, sometimes screaming to be seen. Mm -hmm. um, I was watching the march on Washington yesterday and I was listening to my people mm -hmm. speak. And yesterday I had this epiphany because we were speaking with such force, such assertiveness. And I think I had an epiphany for myself that said, Oh, we speak like that because we we need we're not being heard, right? Okay. And when you okay. sit, I th I I likened it to being in a relationship where when you're <laughs> in a relationship and when it's like you better listen to me. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> that came across, and so can you give more insight? Can you help kind of bring that out a little bit more for me, please? Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. When we aren't being heard, we just get louder, right? We, or we try other tactics. We just do anything and everything to try to be seen and try to be heard, have our stories be validated. And we can see that through, you know, individuals just speaking louder, speaking with more clarity, um, with more, you know, force. Um, we see that in the protests, I think a lot of people get really political about the protests and want them to look a certain way. And, you know, it, it frustrates me because I'm like, these are people who have been trying every possible way to be seen and to be heard. And nothing is acceptable. Nothing is appropriate. Nothing makes you feel comfortable. Um, and so this is truly like, people hurting, people yelling, people screaming of, um, you know, see me, see mm -hmm. my pain, see what I've been through. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned earlier that racial trauma could look several different ways. You've mentioned mm -hmm. 
the historical trauma. What what are some other examples of how racial trauma can be experienced? Mm-hmm. So it can be experienced through just like single events um, in time that happen. So um, we can we can talk about unfortunately Jacob Blake as being kind of a single event in time, um, and you know what his children witnessed them also being traumatized as well from this event. So even if we say a single event in time, I don't. I want to be clear that I'm not saying that the event or the effects of the event are not long lasting because they certainly are. Um, but that the the encounter has a beginning and an end point. So we can think about that. Um, we can also think about microaggressions, which occur all the time, daily and very subtly. And so those are, or excuse me, those are more difficult to identify sometimes because they happen so frequently. So those are microaggressions within our interpersonal relationships. We also have um, vicarious racism, which I talked about a little bit, right? Witnessing somebody else go through um, some type of racist encounter. Um, We have the collective racism experience, um, which is similar to vicarious trauma, but not really tied to like an individual. So it's more of like a collective experience of feeling discriminated against. We just don't have one person to name that something happened to this person, but it's just this collective feel of we're not represented here. And oftentimes they liken that to like media. And if we're not represented in um, a classroom or if we're not represented on the, on, in a TV show. So just collectively feeling like we as black people and as a, as a community are not being seen on that larger scale. Um, We already talked about historical and intergenerational uh, racism. I feel like I'm missing, well, the big one, right? Systemic racism. There it is. (laughs) Yeah, the the buzzword. Everyone's on on this systemic racism kick right now, Um, which I'm toying with the idea of losing that term as well. I know Kendi in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, talks about, you know, systemic racism and structural racism and institutional racism. All of that is redundant because racism is, you know, everywhere and it is kind of embedded in all of our systems and it is all of those things. So saying, having different terminology, I think is going to get us overwhelmed and overloaded with different terms to remember. So but systemic racism being those that are, you know, embedded within our organizations and within our policies and within um, our political structure and all of that. So <laughs> those are those are the various ways we can experience racism and subsequently racial trauma. So is there a difference? So in our field, right, when I yes. started, uh, well, when I started in grad school, you know, it was PTSD, Right. Uh People spoke of PTSD and um, PTSD oftentimes was applied to military. Right. That was they were the poster children Uh of trauma. Yes. Yes. And taking nothing away from our military men and women. What I realized sitting in my graduate program was that my people had gone through trauma and yet mental health was not lifting that message up. 
right? And so is there a difference in PTSD and racial trauma? Um, No. (laughs) So (laughs) post-traumatic stress, I think, is a... It can be an outcome of racial trauma. So I don't want to say that everybody who experiences racial trauma will then have post-traumatic stress disorder, because similarly, not everybody who experiences any other type of trauma is going to have post-traumatic stress disorder. So you might have, um, you might experience some of the symptoms. So you might experience the anger, the nightmares, the numbness, but you may not experience all of them to have the criteria of post-traumatic stress. So uh, we can liken experiencing racism and the symptoms to being something traumatic that certainly could lead to post-traumatic stress disorder. Why is it just gaining traction in our field? Yeah, I mean, that's a fantastic question. I don't know why it's just now gaining traction, because if you look at the research, there have been a lot of people within the psychology field um, or social work fields that are that have been publishing about this topic for a long time. I think our conscience is being tested now. I think that we're speaking out about it and we're seeing things like the suicide rates um, increase and we're seeing the mental health impacts on the black community. And so I think people are looking like, well, what's going on with the mental health field? Like what's happening? And so we're getting a little wake up call that we have been neglecting the black community within our current mental health frameworks that we, what we've been doing has not been working, has not been supporting the black community in any way. And so I think that right now it's getting traction because our conscience is being tested as a field and we are being held responsible for why have we not been addressing this for all of this time? Absolutely. Um, How do we hold our field account? How do we continue to hold them accountable? How do we continue to um, make our voices heard without having to be forceful and frustrated when we go to various conferences or spend our money to be a part, but sometimes don't necessarily see um, the research that is to support our community? How do we hold our um, field accountable? Uh Yeah, no, this is like the, this is a fantastic question because I think it's a, it's a fine line between and I'm picking up on your, how do we hold them accountable, but not be forceful? Because if we, if again, we go back to 400 plus years of being invalidated, I don't know if there's a nice way to hold them accountable. Like, I think we need to be forceful. And I think that we need to demand that it is that we have change now. I think that we are doing that by having these conversations, by advocating for racial trauma to be included within the DSM. I saw recently that the DSM has the DSM five um, diagnostic, what is it, statistic manual, our our textbook, um, our bible of of clinicians for diagnosing. I saw that they had posted uh, a kind of open ended. If anybody has any suggestions on how we can edit the DSM, so you know, really just pushing things out there and letting them know racial trauma needs to be included in here. We need to include racial trauma you know, assessments within all of our standard assessments that are out there. Um, 
I don't know, just continuing to hold that mirror up to them any any chance that we get and and continuing to use our voices. I think that that's the way that we hold them accountable. Having you on this interview, this having you in this conversation, um, I would be remiss not to have a conversation with you about our children and yeah. racial traumas impact to children. Um, so uh-huh. if you could give us kind of an an overview of how that would look with children and how we can care for them as well as adults. I want you to share both. Sure. Yeah. So yes, I mean, I have a 15 month old daughter. So, you know, I thought about this topic prior to having her. And now that I have her, it's just, you know, that she's here. It's, it weighs on me a lot that this is the conversations that I have to have and prepare her, you know, for. So, you know, even though I do this research, so racial trauma absolutely impacts children. I think we think that kids are, you know, resilient, which they are. Um, but yes, we absolutely need to be reminded that it, it impacts them. How it impacts them, it's going to impact their self-esteem. It's going to impact their identity development process. It's going to impact their brain chemistry. Um, So their brains are forming. You know, we know that brains are continuing to grow and develop up until early 20s. So if a child is experiencing any type of trauma, not just specifically racial trauma, but any trauma during those formative years, as your brain is developing, it changes your brain chemistry. It impacts how you process information. It impacts your coping strategies that you learn how to use. It impacts what you think about yourself and, and, you know, your just mental health moving forward as an adult. And so uh, what my research started off as is called ethnic racial socialization. So it's, it's the talk, right. Um, that black parents have with their kids. Um, That is so protective for children in experiencing racial trauma, talking to kids about what it means to be black, instilling in them all of the culture and history and positivity so that they can be prideful, that they can love themselves, love the color of their skin, love their hair texture, you know, know about their history, but also coupled with that really honing in on you are going to be treated unfairly, unfortunately, because of your race. And here's how we deal with it, right? Giving them those coping strategies, letting them know that they can come talk to you, letting them know that, you know, they have these resources available to them, whatever that looks like for your family. I don't want to have a blanket like coping strategies, but I think that conversation is effective and just letting kids know that this is the reality. And then here's what we have to do as a family to try to cope with that. Those things are protective for experiencing racial trauma um, for children, especially getting them into therapy. So parents that are like, I don't know how to have this conversation or start it, or I don't know coping strategies that are healthy because those have never been taught to me, right? Again, with intergenerational trauma, we pass down unhealthy coping strategies as well. So getting into therapy to learn, you know, getting your child into therapy to learn good coping strategies to manage their emotions and process these racist experiences and encounters that they have, um, those are all going to be really helpful for kids. I um, I know for you, it's important to address racial trauma um, mm-hmm. when working with um, your clients. 
do mental health professionals, is it an option to address racial trauma? Absolutely not. Okay. Absolutely not. It is not an option. It It is not something that you can say, I don't feel comfortable doing, so I'm not going to talk to my clients about, or I don't see this happening, so it's not something that I'm going to bring up. Um, if mental health professionals are not talking about racial trauma, we are in violation of our code of ethics. Mm. We are doing harm to our clients. We are not meeting them where they're at. We are not providing them effective and adequate services. So no, it it is not an option anymore. I I think that we've hid behind ignorance and um, being naive to the impact of racism. And I don't think that we can do that anymore. I think we have enough evidence and it is clear that this is impacting the mental health of the black community. And so if it is not addressed in therapy, then you are in direct violation of our code of ethics of doing no harm to our black clients. Is our racial climate getting worse? Is it just that we have more eyes on it? Mm -hmm. What about this feels? Well, let me back up. I was listening to uh, Martin Luther King, some of his speeches yesterday and where he was and what he was speaking about in the 60s, I could relate to today. But I want to believe that our racial climate has gotten better. But I don't want to do right. right. But I I don't understand how I can relate to Martin Luther King's speeches in such a very profound way. So what's your opinion? Yeah, absolutely. And when I see images on social media that compare, you know, 1960 image to 2020, I feel the same way of how are we in the same place that we were back then? Um, so I think for people of color and black, uh, the black community specifically, I don't think that things have changed. I don't think that they have gotten better. I think that we have cont- we've been experiencing very similar types of racism and racial trauma day in and day out that we can all connect with. Um, I think what's different in terms of our racial climate is that white individuals or those who don't identify as people of color are now being awakened to this process. I don't know if that was as um, prominent in the past. And so I think we have more allies now. I think that we have more um, people who are willing to listen and to empathize with the black experience. And so I think that's what makes a difference that is making it feel like the racial climate is more heightened, that it's just more uh, tense, that it is just more racist right now. I think it's because people are just simply more aware that it's happening. I think if you talk to a lot of black individuals, they'll say like, well, I could have told you that, like none of this is new. Um, But I think that there are a lot of people who don't identify as people of color that are are in absolute shock right now and are like, this is, I can't believe this is happening. And now that my eyes are open, I'm seeing it everywhere. And so I think that's what's new. I also will say that the like more overt types of racism probably, you know, definitely are still happening and we're seeing it on a more um, just, 
everywhere with with media and social media we can see it more frequently and you know it goes viral but i think the like covert types of racism that more like systemic types of racism definitely I don't want to say that it's gotten worse, but I I think people are holding on to it. Um, it it's, it's getting more deeper ingrained. I think that we're realizing more that it is within the very framework of this country and the very fabric of this country. And so I think that task of like, what do we do now feels more daunting. Um, but anyways, those are my thoughts on, on the racial climate. I don't know if it's changed, but I think that we have different awareness about it. Well, and when I hear you say people may be holding on to it more, I'm reminded mm-hmm. of when you are like, see, I told you, I told you it was real, right? And so <laughs> I'm, I'm showing you, I'm giving you the evidence because for so long you've been telling me I'm making this up or this really isn't happening. Right. And so now as a community, as a collective, it's no. And you need to respond accordingly to what we have been telling you. Absolutely. Right. The racial gaslighting is like has been on point. Right. For many years of just you know, systemically, everyone's saying like, this is not happening. It can't be that bad. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't see that. We're all just one human race. There's no color, all of that. And so now I think that we truly are, you know, some people are truly coming, coming to the realization, like, okay, this, this might be happening. I'm thinking about, um, what is it? The commissioner, I guess, of the NFL, um, and, and his statements of, you know, maybe I should have listened to Colin Kaepernick four years ago. Mm-hmm. Right. And so again, like we've been yelling and screaming and kneeling and protesting and quietly mentioning this and not mentioning it at, it at all. And all the different ways have been ignored and invalidated. And I think now people are like, Oh, I, I guess this has been happening. And so, yes, now what do we do about it? Dr. Holcomb, this is my um, second to last question with Uh you. And I want to name in this moment that you have the ears of clinicians around the world. Right. Uh In this moment, you will be you will have people who do not look like you and I and you will have people who do look like us. Uh What are your recommendations for individuals to begin to really um, own and uh, advocate for this type of conversation? What would you suggest? Sure. So I'm reading, I'm going to pull up the name of the book so I don't mess it up. It's Race Talk and the Conspiracy of Silence by um, Wing Sue. And I just started it, so I can't give you a full review of it, but it's it's fantastic in that it really is talking about the psychology of race talk, which I think would really fit with a lot of clinicians. So trying to understand why is it so difficult for us to talk about race? Um, and I think clinicians, we think that we're really aware and that we've done a lot of personal work, which is why we've become clinicians. And I think we have done that. Um, But not as it pertains to racism, not as it pertains to race and not as it pertains to like our own racial identity and what our beliefs are about race and how we interact with ourselves around our race and ethnicity. 
So my first recommendation would be for clinicians to truly start exploring their own racial identity and what their belief system is. Because I think that if your belief system feels like the norm, you don't feel like you have to explore it. Um, but there's an alternative belief system. There's an alternative worldview that has been oppressed and has been invalidated and has, you know, been marginalized. And, and so I think for clinicians that their belief system has never had to be challenged sitting with that, that there's an alternative narrative out there um, is going to be really beneficial because it's going to open your eyes to other people's experiences and allow us to be just more empathic and understanding clinicians. So that's my first recommendation. Explore your own racial identity and explore your own um, belief system around race and ethnicity. And then it's going to be to sit with the discomfort of that. Um, similarly, like we tell our clients to sit with the discomfort um, and to trust the process. So sit in that discomfort of the shame and the guilt and the anger and the shock and whatever you're feeling, whatever discomfort you're feeling as you're processing that to really sit with it. Because I think that historically we've run from that. And that's and that stopped the conversation. As soon as anybody brings up race, you have those feelings, that shame and guilt creep in, and then we cut it off with defensiveness or avoidance, and then it stops, and then we hope that it goes away. And I think that we're seeing that it's not going to go away, and it won't go away. And so really sitting with that in, for ourselves and just doing a lot of our own individual work. Our clients are coming to us to do their work, you know, to process their work with us. But we really need as clinicians to do our own work around this. Um, those would be my first recommendation. Start there, do your own work, read books like Kindy's How to Be an Anti-Racist and this book um, that I was just talking about by Wing Sue um, and a variety of others that are out there. But, you know, there's even implicit bias tests that you can do free online to just get an idea. You may think like, no, I treat everybody equally, but you take this project implicit bias test by Harvard University and you might see that you do have a preference or a bias towards certain groups. And that gives you a starting point to see, you know, where do I need to do some work? Those would be my initial recommendations. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. um, as we wrap up, I want to have a Wakanda forever moment. Mm -hmm. And after our Wakanda forever moment, I would love for you to tell people where they can find you on social media or by email. Okay. My Wakanda mm -hmm. forever moment is who are the ancestors or pioneers who have guided your work? Mm -hmm. Can you share that with our audience? Sure. Sure. So I think when I was doing ethnic racial socialization work, the Clarks, Dr. and Dr. Clark, who have the famous doll study, I think were ones that really guided my work in terms of if you're not familiar with it, definitely look it up where, um, you know, they had children look at different dolls of different ethnicities and the labels that they gave to those dolls really spoke to the necessity of talking to children about race 
earlier than we thought we needed to because they were picking up on bias and internalizing um, racism at earlier ages than we even thought. These are really young kids. And my dissertation was looking at children who were two and three and why it's important to even start there. So I think the Clarks... um, husband and wife team would be the first ones who had like an influential um, part of my step of my work. And now as I kind of dive into more racial trauma, I've been spending a lot of time reading um, uh, Dr. Robert T. Carter, and he's out of um, Columbia University, the teaching um, college of Columbia. He's published a lot of articles, like an insane amount of articles. That's what I said, our field, we've been doing this. He's a psychologist Um, uh, on racial trauma, has written lots of books, speaking to clinicians, speaking to, you know, how we address this within the therapeutic setting. Um, So that has really been influential for me in reading his work. Uh, Dr. Kenneth Hardy has done a lot of work with diversity and, you know, racial trauma, also providing lots of resources for clinicians and even doing trainings on, on how clinicians can address this within themselves, self of the therapist stuff, but also with clients. Um, So those are the ones that I'm initially thinking about, but definitely as I'm even, I would even consider myself a novice within this field because I am recognizing that my training was, a lot of these scholars were missing from my training. And so even though this is a passion of mine, I'm like, oh, I've never heard of this person. Um, And so, you know, Black scholars within this field who have been doing this work for a long time are still new to me. So yeah. that's where I have been starting, but yeah, I'm, I'm a novice still. I went to a predominantly white institution mm-hmm. and the, I never saw one time the Clarks mm-hmm. introduced. Mm-hmm. Now I hear about the rabbit, right? The, right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and we're talking about programs that centered around family therapy, right? And yet no one was talking about the study that the Clarks did to show the bias and how children encounter race and how. mm, But I'll leave Mm -hmm. that there. Uh, (laughs) No, you're you're absolutely right. You know, and I think we have to come come to grips with that too. our training and what we're what we're leaving out from our training. For Mm -hmm. sure. Where can people find you? So they can find me on Instagram at Holcomb Counseling. You can find me at www.holcombcounselingandconsulting.com. And if you go to that website, you can get an email to me as well. So I won't repeat my email, but I'm on Instagram. Um, I'm also on Facebook at Holcomb Counseling and Consulting as well. And so, yeah, and then my website. Awesome. Can you spell Holcomb for them? Just yes, so? I will. Okay. Yes. H-O-L-C-O-M-B. And B as in boy. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with our audience. We really appreciate it. And I'm letting you know now, I look forward to us having further conversations to share Absolutely. Black voices and Black stories. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. That's our show. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please find us on all social media platforms. And please, please, please be sure to rate 
and review the show. It ensures that we are seen around the globe. Uh, my name is Brian Doster. You can find me on Instagram, Instagram at Brian dot the dot therapist. Yep, I forgot my own. And I just want to say thank you for listening. And I look forward to connecting with you all in the future. Mm-hmm.